0: Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others and uh, organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today is Dunstreet's birthday as well. Happy birthday. Uh, today's episode is also sponsored to you, uh, sponsored by Morris Blackburn. Morris Blackburn's Dust Diseases team have accumulated more than 20 years of experience in asbestos litigation and pride themselves on ensuring that their clients not only receive the best compensation result, but that they are supported during their stressful and traumatic time. Morris Blackburn are looking for a passionate full-time associate to join their Dust Diseases team in their Brisbane office. To apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and the issues uh, uh, of the day, people leading them from home and abroad. And uh, we are going to South Australia today because the South Australian election has been announced which is set down for Saturday the 19th of March, from memory. And we're talking to uh, Adelaide Advertiser uh, journalist and author Michael Maguire about the, uh, the campaign that has just begun in earnest on the weekend. Uh, Peter Malinowskis, the Labor opposition leader that launched Labor's campaign uh, at a rally, which was fantastic. Excellent speech from Peter. Um, we'll have a chat to Michael Maguire uh, about the ins and outs of this campaign and where the race will be won and lost. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Friday afternoon in uh, sunny Melbourne uh, on uh, Happy Birthday Dunst Street, third birthday today. Mazel tov to me. Um, and uh, joining him on the line from uh, the great state of South Australia, uh, my home state for five years, um, is a longtime journalist with the Adelaide, Adelaide Advertiser and an author, but also um, an advisor to uh, various South Australian state and federal Labor governments. Michael McGuire, welcome to Socially Democratic Thanks for having me, Stephen. I think you you are the very first person from uh, the um, News Corp to ever come on my podcast.
1: So, <laughs> are you breaking some sort of a rule, or uh, you know, I'm breaking through a glass ceiling here? Am I? <laughs>
0: yeah, you, you may, may, maybe you've just shattered it. Um, but it also, we're not, we're, not, we're not all bad. Exactly. It just proves that you know, I you know, I'm a bit, I'm a bigger, bigger person, I'm a better human being.
1: You've got to speak to all parts of society, Stephen, I think. There's no point in, uh, you know, shouting into the echo chamber.
0: Exactly. Now, some would argue that this podcast is a setup for you and I to talk about Celtic. Uh, and they That's would... why I came on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, we will do that, and uh, I think we have at least 10 so supporters that listen to this show. Uh, hello uh, <laughs> Sean Donnelly um, in uh, the Middle East at the moment. Um, but uh, I think we'll leave that to the end. Fair, fair enough. Okay. What I do want to talk to you about is the South Australian state election, which um, is on the last Saturday, no, the second Saturday. in March 19. March, thank you, March 19. It's always just too close to St. Patrick's Day as well, and that was a fear I had when I lived in Adelaide. I was like, one day it's going to <laughs> clash and I'm going to be torn. What will I do? <laughs> yeah, I think well, yeah, a couple of, 2014 maybe ones. or Yeah, there's
1: certainly been one on the 17th.
0: Yeah, yeah. which it's, is a, very inappropriate when you think about it. Well, you know, you, you end
1: up drinking on election night either way,
0: don't you? Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's let's talk about the election. Uh, I, I want to sort of cover off, you know, the, the issues that will play out during the campaign. I want to talk about some of the target seats that are critical uh, for Labor to win uh, government back. Uh, I want to talk about the leaders themselves. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you can just sort of set the context of what the state of the South Australian Parliament is at this moment as we go into this election campaign. Because over the last four years, it's been an interesting journey for the um, state Liberal government, um, which they, you know, I think when they won in 2018, uh, 18, 18, you know, they came into government after a, 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 you know, a long, great period for Labor, um, under, beginning with Mike Rann and then Jay Weatherall. Um, but eventually, you know, like all, you know, living in progressive liberal democracies, eventually you kind of, you know, the public like to hand it over to some other group for for, for a while. Um, so Labor had a good run. Um, but this has been four years of a, of a Liberal government for the first time in a long time in South Australia. How has this, this gone?
1: Well, it's uh, it's been an interesting time, as you can imagine. So, yeah, Libs won at the last election after 16 years of, of uh, Labor government. Uh, I would say the last term of. Uh, Labour government looked like the last term of a 16-year government. It was a bit bit tired, a bit all over the place, and you know, end up talking about all the wrong things and making some silly decisions. So in the, in the lower house of the South Australian state parliament, there are 47 seats. So at the last election, uh, the Liberals won 25 uh, and Labour won 19. And there's a couple of independents in there. So 25 out of 47 is clearly quite a comfortable majority in in that sort of sense. And and they came into it, you know, as they do, full of life and, you know, full of vim, vim and vigor. But um, one thing that the Liberals aren't very good at necessarily is internal politics. And we saw for a variety of reasons, a lot of uh, Liberals, mainly in safe liberal seats, kind of drift out of the, resign from the party, essentially. One member, a fellow called Sam Deluc, uh, behaved badly at a Christmas party and got um, uh, uh Went to court to face assault charges. He apparently the allegation was he would slapped a fellow MP on, on the bottom. Um, he was he was um, uh, he wasn't convicted on that charge, but the magistrate did call him a drunken pest. So he was he was forced to resign from the Libs and went and sat as an independent. There was uh, a thing he called the country members uh, you know allowance scandal, which essentially was if you're a country member, you get you know a, a travel allowance essentially to come to, to the city for for Parliament. Um, the allegation again was that. Three of them uh, had been watching that allowance in some fashion. uh, uh, And they stepped aside from the Liberal Party while those charges were investigated. Some of them have been subsequently uh, dropped and they've moved on. Some are still facing charges. One of them still facing charges is a chap called Fraser Ellis, who uh, is a country member from the York Peninsula. So he's now an independent and he might well win. Uh, there's another fellow who is not connected with that scandal called Dan Cregan, who came in at the last election in the blue sort of ribbon Adelaide Hill seat of Cavell. Uh, it's not clear exactly what his problems were, but he uh, he did quit the Libs as well and sat as an independent. He seemed to be one of those who thought he should have been in Cabinet, and he wasn't. So he's uh, he, was, he actually said he was quitting and not running again, changed his mind and said he was running as an independent. And he is now actually also the Speaker of, a, of the... Um, uh, of the house of assembly uh, as, as these things work so over the course of this you know almost four years the libs have you know almost entirely lost control of the chamber uh so they've got the yeah, they've, they've gone from come from majority to minority governments uh some of those uh, independents including ellis and cregan and the fellow called try and gambier who used to be a lib as well are our favorites to win so it, it may well come down to um some sort of minority government either way. Uh, I think the Libs are still favourite to hold on to power or to cling on to power, but it's not it's not as clear-cut as it possibly could be or should be from a Liberal point of view.
0: How much damage has this caused the, the Marshall government, do you think, the Liberal Marshall government, the, the, all of this sort of backbench shenanigans?
1: I think it's certainly caused damage because it looks like they just can't quite control themselves or, you know, they're more interested in themselves than the broader population. But again, it's always hard to know just how much this seeps out into to the broader community or how much of it is regarded as a, uh, an indication that they, they can't handle themselves or the state or that it's just normal political bickering and interference and, you know, what, what else would you expect from politicians that are all out to look after themselves? But I think it's certainly taken a little bit of a shine off it. I mean, along the way, I didn't mention um, she's still in Parliament, but the former Deputy Premier and Attorney, no, she's, technically still Attorney General, but stood aside, Vicky Chapman, who's a ally of the Premier, had to step aside over a conflict of interest um, situation as well. It's a complicated story involving Kangaroo Island logging, and Miss um, Chapman at the time was also an AG plus planning minister, and she got herself involved in a planning decision on Kangaroo Island, uh, where she had property, and it's a whole long story. So, sort of story. So there was a vote in the House of Assembly, which uh, came on confidence, and she lost the vote of confidence of, of the, on the floor of the Parliament. So she had to eventually step aside as as a minister. So there's been all these kind of shenanigans over the last you know nine to twelve months, which which makes them look a bit amateurish. But again, how much people pay attention to that, I, I'm not sure whether they just see it as political bickering or whether they see it as Going to the question of competence is you know i don't think it's quite clear
0: when i i want to talk about the leaders now starting with stephen marshall when i lived in adelaide i went to a dinner i think it was the Clipsall 500 dinner that's at the, what, the convention center or something on the friday night before Clipsal begins and it's you know put on by the state government and I remember um, Kevin Fowler got up and or well, Mike Rain got up and gave a big speech, and every, everyone that anyone and everyone was there that was involved in government and the race and you know corporate Adelaide and all that kind of stuff. The table I was on had St- Stephen Marshall on that table, and he mm. was he was a plus one of someone, someone who I right. think someone who I think worked in government or something. I can't remember. It's, it's irrelevant. And he was a fun guy on the table. Like, he wasn't taking himself too seriously, enjoyed a good drink, liked being a bit of a center of attention, liked to drop some gags, um, but seemed, you know, pretty kind of, pretty light. light, I I don't want to say lightweight, but, you know, I wasn't taking this bloke too seriously compared to some of the other people that were on the table. In fact, I think Kevin Mm. Foley might have been on our table, former um, state treasurer. Then I moved back to Melbourne uh, and, uh, you know, go about my business. And then one day I sort of, checking on what's going on in South Australian state politics and now Stephen Marshall's not only in Parliament but is now the leader and then becomes the Premier. And I was like, this guy? This guy's now the Premier of South Australia? How the hell did he even get into Parliament? Um, that's my view of Stephen Marshall. What mm. is the perception of Stephen Marshall by the voting public, do you think?
1: I, th- I think they, they see him as... They've seen a lot of him the last two years because of COVID and he would front up and and do the the press conferences every day along with the chief health officer and the police commissioner and i think people thought he'd done it he was a pretty reasonably safe pair of hands he wasn't trying to you know overstate his role he was seemed to be quite he was quite happy to follow the the medical advice he was very happy to follow the the police advice and he was there but he wasn't front and center claiming all the uh the, the glory in a sense for himself it wasn't all on his shoulders which his backfired on him subsequently to some extent we might talk about that but I think people saw him as a, you know, just a, a, a safe your hands, quite, you know, quite reasonable. They, I think they, they, they found him an interesting change of pace after Ran and Wetherill. He was never, Ran and Wetherill certainly tended to be in your face a lot more and were a lot more um, not exactly aggressive, but they, they were very, you know, they were very obviously politicians and, you know, sold a message as politicians. Marshall's always traded on not quite being a politician, a bit of an accidental politician. I mean, you have to remember the he was made opposition leader in his first term in Parliament, which you know is is pretty unusual. Um, and he became he became um, sort of the leader after there was all you know usual internal contretemps where Isabel Redmond was there and she got rolled, and Martin Hamill Smith was there and he got and he and he got rolled, and everyone decided it was all too hard and needed a new face and. After a brief period as deputy, uh, Stephen came through the through the middle, and as the you know acceptable face to, to both factions, essentially that you know we could get behind and you know so that was in 2013 maybe. So mm. he was very green, very naive. Um, his businesses, his background is in, in business. He was a businessman. Um, various sort of uh, his parents had a, a furniture company, which was quite large and sold off. And he, he worked in various fields, but he was a businessman, so he got that sort of a typical sort of liberal business, you know, business as king sort of view to, to the party, uh, but he was, he was an affable kind of character. The first time I met him, really, I did a story on him just before he became opposition leader, he must regret this. But he took me sailing on his yacht, which is, say, no, not a great optic possibly for a, a liberal party leader. The yacht was called Public Enemy, which is... <laughs> no, no, Another factor. So you think, oh well, you know, it is a bit big, you know, hoity-toity blue ribbon. What, you know, what's going on? But afterwards, we went back to this is at the, the, the cruising yacht squadron, whatever it was. But we didn't go to the bar afterwards. We went to his car. We're here Esky, and we asked him in a couple of beers in the car park and I just had a chat. So he was, you know, he's not. He hmm. wouldn't say he's up himself. He's not one of those out of touch kind of libs who doesn't understand what's going on in the world. He's, he's, he's a. You could easily have a chat to him. He's, he's, he's pretty good company and and the rest of it. But. So he, st- he styled himself mainly as this. I'm not a politician. I'm, mm. not, I'm not. I'm not Jay Weatherall. I wasn't Mike Rand. I'm not even Peter Malinowski, with my long history in unions and and you know and being involved. in... you know Peter was the bloke who went to to Rand to tell to tell him his time was up, and mm. you know it was Jay's turn kind of stuff. So he's been enmeshed in politics for a long time. So uh, Marshall makes great play of the fact that that's not him, and I think people quite it was a bit of a change of pace, and I think people quite liked him and were prepared to give them a chance um so but some of the glosses maybe come off as it does over the last three months in particular since the since the borders were reopened to new south wales and victoria again
0: let's talk about COVID then um as an issue for the campaign i'm interested in it when uh i I remember the last two years is basically a blur and i can't remember when yeah i can't remember when this happened but it was certainly at the time when uh the premier of victoria Dan Andrews was doing the daily presses. He did like 160,000 in a row or something. Uh, And then something was going on in South Australia and Marshall had to get up and do a stand-up with the chief health officer. And the contrast, and a couple of my friends who were former Labor Party media advisors were joking, saying, God, tough life being the press sec for the, the liberal leader in South Australia, what a doddle that is, just because of the way that the media pack just lobbed some of the easiest matzo balls over home plate for Marshall to hit. And even then he was like a, he looked like a, a mixo rabbit in headlights. Like the guy was shitting himself, you know? And I was like, going, oh mate, these questions are absolute doddles. Like, and contrasting it with literally the ABC had just flipped from the hyena pack, you know, you know, Thunderdome, uh, Daily Thunderdome with Dan, Dan Andrews and, you know, the the right-wing established media in Victoria. Like, I was just like, oh, God, this is just pathetic. So I kind of thought this guy is just going to sleepwalk through this whole COVID thing. So things look good mm-hmm. in South Australia, I thought, at that point mm-hmm. in time, just by looking at that press conference anyway. Um, what's happened in the last three months that you think things have started to come a little bit unstuck?
1: So, right. so Marshall, I mean, got away with in a sense. He, didn't, he never got the, the grilling that, that Andrews got possibly because – we were doing well after the first that first wave of COVID, we did relatively well. There was you know, very few infections, very few deaths. We kind of after that first lockdown got on with life to an extent. Obviously not entirely, but so people looked South Australians looked at the rest of the country. They looked at Victoria and said, Well, you know, we're not them, isn't that good? You know, we're not locked in our houses for months on end and there's not, you know, heaps mm. of people getting sick and dying and, and the rest of it. So I think in Marshall, as I said, talked about he took the health advice and he took the cops' advice and this is the best way to go. And while that worked and while the numbers were good and while people could, you know, get out and about, that 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 worked for him. Um, so until we opened the borders here to New South Wales and Victoria on November 23 last year, so just ahead of the Omicron sort of thing. Um, so at that stage we'd had, I don't know, I think we had four deaths over the whole course of the... Um, Whole course of the of the pandemic, mm-hmm. so I think at the last count, since November 23, we're for another 160 deaths. So, story really kind of evaded that whole that first 18 months of the pandemic in, in pretty good shape. But now, so we went from zero cases in last November. Now there was a peak of around I don't know five and a half thousand a day in in the middle of January, right? So that's what scared scared people. We thought we were being I guess dragged into the whole what we'd seen. In New South Wales, and what we'd seen in Victoria, and and that had now come to to us. And a lot of people were, you know, people get scared, I guess, and people were unhappy that um, we'd opened the borders, I think. You know, there's a lot of people, I mean, it was was a divided argument. A lot of people thought we should have opened the borders earlier, but many, many, many more people thought we should have kept the borders closed and and not invited Omicron in. Well, which is probably clearly unrealistic in the long term, but because we hadn't been used to it, we hadn't been through the the hard days of Victoria and New South Wales, this was a bit of a shock to South Australia. We had, you know, 10-hour testing queues at PCR sites and, and all that sort of stuff, and the, the system, the health system was seen to be entirely unprepared for, for, for all this, you know, coming to South Australia. So at that point, Marshall's decision to, you know, if you like, hide behind the chief public health officer and the police commissioner was seen to be actually... The, the wrong thing to do because the people wanted them out there showing leadership and deciding, you know, you know, or running the state and saving, keeping them safe and all that sort of stuff. And he was still seen to be, uh, you know, deferring to, to public servants essentially. And, um, and as it went on, because when we brought back restrictions as well, you know, those pubs and all that sort of stuff were restricted in numbers, uh, then Marshall started to get offside with his sort of base community, especially when it comes to sort of fundraising, I guess. The AHA, the Hotels Association here are big sort of liberal donors and backers and and they went off the tree when restrictions were, were brought back in because, you know, as we know, pubs were struggling mightily. Business SA, another sort of, a you know, traditional liberal outfit, um, started criticising the government and asking for more help because the CBD was a ghost town and businesses were dying on the knees. And, you know, and I think... All that was tightened because just before November and we're opening the borders. This was Freedom Day. Everyone was going. Everything was going to be great, and there's this sense of optimism. And once the numbers started going up, the restrictions kept 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 going. Um, you know, restrictions get got brought back in. Um, people, you know, felt let down.
0: Mm.
1: You know, they thought they, they thought they thought it was over. Essentially, then it was worse than ever. So they felt you know let down, and and Marshall took a lot of the sort of the blame for that
0: i think i wondered at the time if marshall wouldn't go down the similar path that the western australian state government have done as well and created this sort of fortress essay and said yeah. you know i am i am all for south australia and appeal to that parochialism of, of people within the state to say i'm going to protect my community and we're not opening up the borders uh, until you know a certain point in time i'm assuming that wasn't happening because i reckon he would have been getting heavied from Scott Morrison saying, don't you dare, like well, I'm trying to open up this country here and return back to normal. I need you to open those borders. Yeah.
1: I think that was part of it. But I also think with an election in March, I don't know if that would have been very popular. And, you know, from your time here, you remember how how, you know, popular the Ashes test is, for example, and the cricket, you know, is here. So we had our test match in, you know, about two weeks after the borders opened. And if we had not opened the borders at that stage, they would have cancelled the cricket and that would have been mm. A disaster electorally for for Marshall, I think, you know. I mean it's a bit bread and circuses, but 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 there you have it, you know? um he opened up, he, he said before he opened up it, we talked about opening up when we got to eighty percent, I think it was double double dose vaccination. And we and we weren't there. We weren't short of it, it was seventy seven, seventy eight, but you know, it was gonna be eighty percent are opening up, then it was November twenty three we're opening up no matter what kind of thing. So it kind of um Fit into the narrative. It was that things were being rushed a little. But and you've got to be saying this was ahead of Omicron. They didn't see Omicron coming at all. Clearly, like you know, many people didn't. So it may have been different if they, under if you know, Omicron had hit properly a few weeks earlier.
0: Let's um, flip and then talk about his opponent, which is um, the leader of the opposition, uh, Labor's Peter mm. a former colleague of mine at the SDA. Yes. Um, I, I found that it. I've, I've said this a couple of times on the podcast over the last two years. Of all of the opposition leaders in the country that have handled the role of an opposition during a once in a century global pandemic, mm. uh, there have been incredible. There have been really bad examples of it here in Victoria, probably mm-hmm. uh, top of the power rankings on that one. Mm-hmm. Yep. But the one that stands out for me uh, that has done a great job, I think, has been. Peter Malinowskis and and the Labor team. Um, I want to get your reflections on um, how uh, Peter and the opposition have played a role during the pandemic, um, and what your thoughts are on the strengths and weaknesses of it.
1: Well, I think um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think he did handle it very well. He did, took the approach that he was also going to rely on the on the on the health advice and and the you know the. The police commissioner's advice, and he was not. There was not going to be a you know cigarette paper between him and the premier for much of it. And he, and he didn't. It was a very much a straight bipartisan approach. You know, if that's what the health advice is, we back that. You know, and if mm. that's what the premier says the health advice is, well, we back the premier. It was there was very little politicking, if you like, or criticism of, of how that approach was uh, uh, handled by, by by Labour. They, they did a, a pretty good job of it. So that, you know. Maybe they saw what was happening in Victoria and understood that um, the, you know the community felt scared at the time and they wanted their leaders to to show that they were in it for the community and not in it for themselves and not looking to exploit marginal differences or marginal cracks in in, in approach to these kind of things. So Malas stood you know pretty squarely behind the premier and and didn't make himself look like a you know as the carping negative opposition leader for for much of that two years. So, it's probably a pretty smart thing at the time. Um, the downside, possibly, for him was that I think his uh, sort of recognition levels with the community are pretty low because he wasn't on the news every night shouting at Marshall what what a disaster this was and he should be doing this, that, or the other. Mm. Um, so he had very little visibility for for a long time, Peter. So he um, and he's still trying to to make that up. He's running adverts here at the moment. You know who is you know. Who I who I am kind of stuff running around with his kids and, and his wife and you know shots on the furry oval playing furry and all that sort of stuff. So he's still trying to introduce himself to the to the community. So I think overall it was it was the right right approach. I think if he you know he would have annoyed a lot of people, a lot, a lot, a lot of voters if he'd been a carping, whinging opposition leader, especially when SA was regarded as that as having handled that part of the pandemic very well. Mm. So there's probably no upside in him him, uh, criticizing Marshall, or you know, there's no chance he was going to criticize Nicola Ferrier because she was seen as the kind of the the saint of the process, and everyone trusted Nicola's advice. So he wasn't going to criticize her, or certainly no one criticizes police commissioners, do they? So he wasn't going to criticize him. So he had to, he tried to almost elbow himself in as part of the the COVID team in a sense. He was right, but you know, he was you know a good South Australian doing the best for South Australia. Yeah, but as I said, so that's um, yeah. So I think it was a net positive, but the downside was that he got very little visibility for for quite a long time.
0: I don't want to jump ahead here, but I certainly think what has helped his visibility certainly in the last two or three weeks is getting that rig out at the the swimming pool (laughs) for that announcement. Bloody hell, the Sunday Mail loved that one. (laughs) Commander and beef, I think, was the headline. There was a there was a couple of crackers.
1: Yeah, well, it was—he's—he's uh, uh, he's pretending that wasn't a well-planned out thing, but uh, I'm not—I'm not so sure. But because uh, this week, uh, you know, just to back up the whole fitness thing, he's—he's um, he's inviting people to go for a run with him along the Torrens at six in the morning. So right. you know, he's out there looking energetic and fit and young and you know, ready to go and doing interviews with you know, journalists who are trying to keep up with him. Um, so yeah, he's—he's he's certainly trading on that you know, younger, you know, energetic sort of a new face for, for South Australia bit. But yeah, the uh I don't know. I don't I don't know if the uh, getting the top off is a a negative or a positive. I don't know. A lot of uh, you know middle-aged flabby looks like me might not have been too impressed.
0: <laughs> well who is Peter and ask us for those listening that um haven't been tuned into South Australian labor politics and how would you describe the style of leadership that he wants to present to the electorate?
1: Well I think um Peter has been I don't know You'd remember from working with him at the SDA, kind of in three terms. I guess the number one draft pick for Labor for the last, you know, 15 years. He's been earmarked for greatness since he was, you know, in his mid twenties, probably. I think uh, he he was spotted originally by you know Senator Don Farrell, who took a great shine to him. Um, and when I think from memory, when Peter finished university, he was already working, I think, for the SDA before he finished uni. Went to the SDA after uni. Then when Senator Farrell went to the big house in Canberra. Peter took over as SDA leader, which you know in South Australia gives you great power amongst in the Labor Party, among the Labor right in particular. So he ran the, the union for I don't know, seven or eight years, I think. Um, he did come to, as I touched on earlier, he did come to notice of the general public when uh, Jay Weatherall replaced Mike Rand because uh, Peter, along with the then treasurer, I think. Uh, Jack Snelling went to uh, Mike Grant and said, sorry, Mike, your time is up after you know nine years, which caused, as you can imagine, as you mm. probably know, all sorts of anger and unhappiness, but um, we got past that. So Mike is now right behind Peter, you'll be pleased to know. They seem to have uh, built, rebuilt those bridges. Uh, so I think yeah, then Peter joined uh, the Upper House originally here in 2015 or something and went straight into cabinets. was police minister briefly, then he became health minister even more briefly before the 2018 election and then uh, the Liberals are still trying to uh, bang him fair enough too with the, with the health minister state because Labour ran a pretty unpopular health sort of program last time around and shut hospitals this, that and the other so they're trying to lay all that at the, the feet of Peter at the moment um, even though all the, he, he kind of uh, oversaw the end of those decisions rather than, it, rather than being the instigator but you know he'll hold that responsibility. So he's trying to put himself forward, I guess. Apart from the, the young, and energetic bloke who gets his top off as a friend of business, in many ways it's the, that he's a very much of the that, that labour rights uh, friendly with, with, with business, talking about jobs, talking about you know growth of the state, uh, talking about the future. He's he spent absolutely no time talking about the past, as you know. I think he's trying to you know leverage himself away from the sixteen years of labour term last time around, which is understandable, um, to look at, the fact, look, at the, look at the future. And so about, about kids and families and growth and getting the health system in place. And, and you know, he's been pretty, you know, pretty positive for, uh, for an opposition leader overall, I think. So he's, he's doing, um, yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he wants to present to the future.
0: It's interesting just to note the way that the Liberals have responded. Clearly, Labor and Malinowskis are in their head because i hmm. um, sort of talking to some people on the inside that the, the libs had brought forward a lot of their negative ad campaign um, early. Yeah, Because obviously they're, well, I'm assuming that they're worried about Malinowskis, which is funny because I just always come from the skill of thought. If you're at the incumbent, don't talk about your opponent, particularly when their recognition numbers are so low. Because the hmm. minute you start talking about them, people start going, oh, who's this bloke? Or who's this person? Yeah. Um, to, so to do that, they're, they're obviously they're, there's a, there's a fear and a worry there, I'm assuming, within the hmm. liberal camp. Yeah, well, yeah,
1: I think so. Uh, because the election, I mean, is going to be a lot closer than they would have thought it was going to be. Um, as we talked about the the fact that they've lost all those safe blue ribbon liberal seats into the hands of independents and might not get them back. There's a reasonable chance Labour can pick up a pick up a few seats. It's going to be a very tight run race, I think. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, uh, but I think it'll be a minority government either way, probably. But um, yeah, so there, it's a battle of that everyone's trying to define at the moment. Andrews is trying to define himself with these adverts, and then the Libs are out there with their adverts trying to define him as old Labour, the health minister who wrecked the health system, union boss, that sort of stuff—the traditional attack, uh, you know, attack job he do on a, on a Labour leader for union links. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a battle for for definition, I, I guess. Uh, but they, they, they're certainly worried. I mean, he, he's pretty good with I've been out with him on the road a few times and he's always very good with people as well i mean so is marshall one-to-one but yeah melinazquez is you know he's very approachable um he's uh you know he's photogenic telegenic uh and just you know he's a he's a straightforward uh easy block to to speak to and i think people see that when when they meet him
0: he um certainly for i mean and i don't say this to suggest that um peter isn't a, a, a um strong on policy as well but my i don't think i've ever shared this at theory with you before maybe we have over a beer but my theory about how we should run um, campaigns should be like in excess the front person has to be Michael Hutchins that can sing mm. and dance and look ama- look amazing meanwhile you've got the you know the fat Farris brothers at the back writing incredibly amazing music but just don't yeah. but don't switch the roles you know don't get Michael to try and write songs and don't get the Ferris Brothers up the front to sing everyone has their place within the mm. government right and I think that you always need a uh, an, an attractive Front person to communicate the policy, bol- you know, uh, strengths that 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 the party has crafted, mm. um, and I think that um, Peter Malinowskis fulfills that role. I just think that he, you know, people will listen to him. I remember when he spoke at an at a at a, at a um, like a uh, I think it was a, it was a Labor Party event or was it an SDA national conference or something? First time I sort of ever heard Peter get up on stage and speak, and he wasn't party secretary. Terry, so he wasn't a union secretary then, but wow! Like people in the room were going, "Fucking hell!" That you know, that was an amazing speech from a pre, you know, from a reasonably young person. Peter probably mm. still would have been in his mid twenties then. Right. Uh, it was a great speech, um, and I, I think that's one of those one of those moments where people go, "Ah, oh, he's that's like you said before." People earmarked him for like, you know, it was the number one draft pick, right? That yeah. they, they were some of those moments. But also, you know, working on the shop, you know, working in the shop floor and retail, reasonably diverse kind of um, union me- uh, workplace membership, engaging with people. Peter has always been really good with good union organizer. Great to relate with people. Hardworking, focused. You know, I, I think those skills that he has brought to then the sort of I guess the the the, um, the political side of the movement. Um,
1: yeah, I spoke to Don Farrell about him once, and he said that uh, he was one of the things he noticed about Peter was when he was a union organizer, he was very good at convincing people to join up he was yeah, very good at recruiting so way that goes i yeah. guess would we'll go back to personal personal skills and you know
0: absolutely a bit,
1: bit of charisma and the rest of it
0: yeah and you know recruitment in, in any is any union organized listen to this podcast will know it's fucking tough like it's hard yeah. work and so you need to be able to connect with people on a personal level to get them to say yeah okay i'll give you i'll give your organization 10 bucks a week out of my wages
1: yeah that's yeah. a big
0: commitment right that's right from people not
1: Getting a great deal of money. Indeed, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. What What are the issues then? You've talked touched on health. I'm interested to get a sense about. Is health going to be one of the key issues of this campaign? Not just because of obviously we've had this global pandemic, which is a health yeah. issue, but I've noticed certainly um, there's an issue with uh, ambulance ramping, which is very similar to what was happening in 2014 with the Andrews um, campaign when we came into government. Mm-hmm. Talk us through some of the some of the issues that are going to be front and centre of this campaign.
1: Yeah, so Labor are certainly trying to to centre a lot of it around um, health. So, as I said, they didn't criticize necessarily a lot of the COVID handling, but they want to sort of pivot from how we dealt with COVID into the state of the, the system, generally the health system, generally. And uh, ramping has become a quite a, a large issue locally. I mean, it's easily it's easy to define, it's easy to demonstrate on telly and in the paper, and and people get very emotional and rightly so about mm. being trapped in ambulances. There's been a few deaths in ambulances and this sort of stuff. The ramping's not new, it happened under Labour as well, but it's it's become... A bigger issue is we're seeing more and more ramping happening. So the Labour are talking about investing a lot more money into, you know, into, into health as the kind of the centerpiece of their whole campaign. They're talking about, you know, five hundred million dollars. They're talking about hundred extra doctors, 300 extra nurses, hundred and whatever extra beds and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And they're playing that at the same time as they're playing that against the liberal policy of uh, Lib- the Libs want to build a what you have a sport arena essentially on the on the uh, on the rail yards and in the C B D just off North Terrace, just a couple hundred meters down the road from Parliament House. Um so it's a kind of that, that arena is going to cost six hundred and sixty million dollars. It's fifteen thousand seats, it's incredibly expensive for what it is, I think, and it doesn't have a football pitch to my annoyance. But and they want to, you know they're putting it as an also for events and concerts and all that sort of stuff so but it's going to be 660 million dollars this multi-purpose arena so what labor are doing is they've they've branded that a basketball stadium and that's all it is they're mm. spending so they're, they're trying to frame it as a as a you know what are your priorities here you can have labor you can have liberal build you a 666 million dollar basketball stadium or we will take all that 600 million bucks and we'll put it into your health system and that's kind of the the, the um the high point of their, their campaign or the centrality of their campaign. So around time now, with the core float. So, you know, every second core float is it's about the basketball stadium. And I assume that they've done their internal polling and they've decided that this is entirely toxic. And it's not just in Adelaide. They're on, you know, stubby polls in the regions and in all sorts of places, you know, and playing on that thing in, in the regions about, you know, you're being forgotten while the Liberal Party spends $600 million on the city on a basketball stadium no one wants kind of thing. So every day they're out there talking up health, essentially, and how they're going to fix it, which they won't be able to, but, you know, that's mm-hmm. another question. That's, that's for once you get elected, I suppose.
0: Public transport as well seems to be coming through as an issue that um, that is going to be campaigning on. Talk to us about uh, what the concerns are around public transport.
1: Uh, the, well, the Liberals um, privatised the train service. They didn't sell off the assets necessarily. They they've, they've, kind of, they've privatised the management of, of the trains, um, and Labor are going to bring it back into public hands. Essentially, and that's the um, that's that's the that's the big fight when it comes to, to public transport at the moment. So um, again, how, how doable that is, I'm not 100% sure, but yeah, so that will be an issue. Uh, so and there's uh, labor a Labour started the process of electrifying electrifying one of our Northern rail lines, which is now and again it's one of those you know everyone blames each other for the delays, but it's you know hundreds of millions of dollars over budget, and it's you know many. Um, many moons late it's about a year or two late already and it's a, a train line that goes from the middle of adelaide to to gola so right through the north of adelaide essentially um so you there have been uh, lots of criticisms by labor of liberal that you don't care about public transport you're abandoning northern suburbs and, and all this kind of stuff and you're incompetent essentially so yes but um the the, the libs just say well you, you set up a very poor process to start with and we've had to fix your problems so so That's what's, one of those situations.
0: What what's the positive and negative frame that the Liberals are going to run against Labor?
1: Well, I think that they're again, Marshall being um, very much a creature of businesses, talking up uh, the economic future of South Australia. It's about the cut payroll tax, the the bringing um, you know, the lowering costs for business, whether it's you know, land taxes and all these kind of you know, incidental taxes, making it a better place for you know people to invest. They're talking about Spent a lot of time talking about what's happening on the old Royal Adelaide site, which is now known as Lot 14, which is kind of an entrepreneurial centre, which houses the Australian Space Agency and is bringing in sort of a lot of startups. So it's all that kind of entrepreneurial stuff. Companies such as you know Google and Amazon have set up things here, and the Commonwealth Bank have set up things here. So they're talking about this as uh, you know trying to take the state away from its you know its old heavy base of manufacturing, a sense which is died in the asked to some extent, and this is our new exciting future. I am mean, multinational companies to South Australia. This is where a place where your kids can have jobs. You don't have to leave the state anymore to, to to find a good job if you're if you're a young person. Um and trying to talk up that the excitement of, you know, a booming a booming South Australia. So so he's, you know, essentially saying, I, I've set the state on this path and you know I you should let me continue with it because, you know, if you go back to labour, it'll go back to the old ways and the economy will die and taxes will go up and, you know, your kids will be, you know, running for the hills kind of thing.
0: Let's talk about the seats that are yeah. in play in this campaign. Um, I've earmarked four, but I want to get your thoughts on, if I'm missing any, but um, King, Newlands, Elder, Adelaide.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think... um So, I think the way that labour sees it is that the need to win... Adelaide, uh, King and, and Newland, as a starting point. So if they if they win those three, they get from 19 to 22. And if, remember the 47 seat parliament, they're going to need to get to 24. But if they get to 22, they think they're in with the chance of either picking up a fluky one somewhere or doing a deal with an independent to to, to form to form government. Mm. So Newland and King are in the sort of outer north eastern suburbs. They kind of uh, abut each other really. Um, and Newland is going to be fascinating. It's kind of yeah, out in north Eastern suburbs, middle class, young families, tradies, kind of you know areas. Um, so you've got um, a the incumbent is a who holds, uh, Richard Harvey holds it by 0.1 of a percent, I think. Uh, so there's a Labour candidate, Olivia Savas, and there's also an independent, uh, Frances Bedford, who's moving into that seat. Now she used to be next door in Flori. Uh, but after the redistribution last time around she kind of lost a lot of her base in, in the Modbury area that moved into Newland so she's moving uh, into um uh into into Newland so um it could be a genuine three-way contest there and it's going to I think it's going to be very hard to see exactly where it falls uh so if, if labor francis uh, was a long-time member of the uh, labor party before she went independent so I guess they'll be hoping it's if, if if Olivia Sevast doesn't win, then obviously Frances Bedford wins because then she might, they might do, be able to do some sort of a deal with her. But mm. it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. It's got, you know, I think that the three of them will have really fancy their chances of winning that one. And it, it could come down to very fine margins of, you know, who comes first, second and third.
0: That's an interesting. It's a real toss-up that one. Um, Olivia Savas looks a, um, a fantastic candidate that the Labor Party has selected for the seat of uh, New Orleans. What about King? What's the story with um, King? That's also super marginal as well.
1: It is very marginal as well. So King is just immediately to the north, and it's a, it's a slightly different sort of a set up that seat. Though. There'll be it, it encompasses some of uh, you know, the Salisbury, uh, in the Salisbury area. So that's it's King used to be called Napier until. The last election when it became King. Maybe it used to be a very solid Labour seat but the kind of the way it's been redistributed since then has made it much more marginal because it took a lot a lot of the areas of you know north of Elizabeth which were solid sort of Labour territory and then they went to other sort of safe Labour seats. So King is now still got bits of Salisbury but it's also got bits of you know One Free Hill and very regional sort of areas. I mm. mean the top end of King butts into a seat called Schubert which is a, a regional seat which covers the Barossa Valley. So it kind of goes from the the, tail, the outer bits of Adelaide into the, into the country so it's a, it's a it's a mixed up kind of seat in that sense. Um, so again it, it's yeah that, another one that can go either way. I know the Libs have got a yeah I think that uh, I says Richard Harvey's in, in King I think um, yeah he's quite well regarded by the Libs at least so that they they fancy him to hang on but again it's uh, it's going to be a close run thing which makes, which makes it difficult yeah, difficult election to predict. Uh, I think there's a, quite a few seats that c- could go either way. So you know, the Liberals could still win comfortably, and if they hold on to all these seats and you know get a couple of independents back, they could certainly win comfortably. But I think Labor, I think they're 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 certainly right in with with a shout. So then you get, I think they're very they're very keen on Adelaide. I think they think Adelaide, if it's not in the bag, is pretty close. This pre-selected uh, a candidate called Lucy Hoot who used to work in Peter's office, I've worked for Tom Chris previously. And I think I, I even worked with her at the advertiser back in the day, a long time ago. And she's been out, she was pre-selected very early. So she's been on the campaign for eighteen months. So and working it very hard. And and she's a she's a very nice mid-thirties, mother of two, very bright, bubbly, intelligent sort of person. Um she's up against Rachel Sanderson, who's the child protection minister, uh, and is not not being seen to do a great job in that role, so. But you know, Sanderson has also been underestimated in previous years. She wasn't expected to win, um, you know, the last couple of elections either. But she's managed to to, to pull her out of the bag. She, she knocked off little, little Max Smith in two thousand ten to everyone's surprise, and has hung on since then. So she, underestimating her would be would be folly, I'd imagine. But you know,
0: Adelaide's a the state seat of Adelaide. Yes, is a weird seat.
1: It is a weird seat. It, it takes in. Well, it takes in the Adelaide CBD, obviously, but it also takes in some very, you know, blue ribbon areas of Adelaide, North Adelaide, Walkerville, Gilberton, and uh, which is home to, you know, $5 million houses kind of thing. Um, but I think uh, Labour feels confident of areas. It also includes Prospect, which is, uh, you know, much more of a, it's in a city, but it's family friendly and, and this sort of stuff. And I think Lucy lives out in Prospect and she's always out and about. And the Prospect's the biggest booth in that area as well. So she's... A highly visible presence in that and it takes in a bit of Nailsworth as well which is quite similar in that sense as well so yeah you've got yeah it's a very diverse seat and i guess even in the cbd you're going to have a lot of you know new apartments have gone up and new people have come into the city so you're going to have different people younger people voting as well in in, in that seat as well so it could be yeah it's an interesting seat
0: certainly on my social media uh, feed I, i follow lucy um uh, and have been for since she first announced her candidacy. She's been out every weekend, door-knocking with with teams um, of, yeah. of volunteers. Like she's worked, as you said before, she's she, you know she's on the ground, and she's working hard. Um, I, come election night, whether she wins or loses, she should be proud of the fact she's left nothing on the field because she's had a fair crack, which is great. Um,
1: no, but- no, she's certainly given it, given it everything. So it'll be fascinating to see. I mean, yeah, again, you, I guess as I said, you would want to underestimate Sanderson, but I think most people think that that uh, yeah Lucy will. We'll, we'll probably win the scene. And Elder? Elder. So Elder's in the inner, inner south, um, held by the Libs, but I think late, that was the Patrick Conlon seat back in the day as well. So it's got a, a Labour kind of heritage as well to some extent, but uh, it's kind of flicked around between both parties over the years. So this is kind of um, down in just the inner southern suburbs, places like Clowns Park, Clowns Gardens, which have become really interesting areas. that in sort of a yeah you know, again young families and that sort of thing but an area where real estate prices have gone through the roof in recent times become very desirable sort of places to live um, and has held by the Libs at the moment by by two percent uh, so again it's 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 in the it's in the mix there.
0: Uh, Karen sorry, Carol Bibb is the. Power now. Oh, right. Sorry, I stand corrected. Um, obviously, a lot of controversy. <laughs> the campaign and running a negative campaign against her a, a while ago and. 2014. Yeah, she
1: ran against Annabel DiGans, which is another story, another story in itself with the, the DiGans. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah. So she was Karen had been back there before she got married, and, and I have to say the Labour ran a fairly disgraceful campaign there. Uh, they, they essentially ran these flyers saying. Can you trust Habib with, you know, up against a kind of bullet marked sort of brick wall looking like, you know, she was just out of the Middle East and, you know, had violent tendencies. And it was, if not racist, very, very close to being racist. It was pretty disgraceful.
0: It wasn't our finest moment in campaigning.
1: No, no it was pretty bad.
0: Um, the last question I've got to ask you is uh, before we talk about other things. Important things. Indeed. Uh, the Prime Minister, if you're Scott Morrison, do you go visit South Australia? If you're Stephen Marshall, do you want Scott Morrison to come and visit you in South Australia during the campaign or will he make himself s- scarce?
1: I think he'll, he'll come once, won't he, at least? I mean, I I, I don't think in the current environment uh, that the Premier would want the Prime Minister to be to uh, to be, um, to be coming down. I don't think it's a positive for him. But Marshall is, you know, he certainly attached himself pretty closely to to Morrison over the whole COVID stuff. And I think what did... Morrison referred to Marshall as a, a little quokker or something endearing or something at something. point. Mm. So um, he certainly, I think Labour are trying to, you know, push, push that line that, uh, you know, we're subservient to Canberra, you know, that, that, that Marshall doesn't have the, the gumption to stand up to Canberra and stand up to Morrison for the, for the good of the state. And, you know, if you're like Peter Mellonis, he'll tell Canberra what's what, you know, the formula that worked so well for Mike Rann and Jay Weather for, for many years. So, yeah, I, I, I can't, if he doesn't come, if Morrison didn't come, I think that would be a a bigger story. <laughs> if be, mm. you know, he was too scared, or he was, you know, snubbing us, or whatever. I, it'd be a bigger story if he doesn't come. So I'm sure he'll come at some point. Probably with a big chequebook.
0: You'd think that uh, you'd, if you if you're not that keen on it, you'd get it out of the way early so that it doesn't become a story. Do it soon yeah, in the campaign, yeah. and the campaign kind of officially kicked off on the weekend. I know Mally uh, did the campaign launch. Look fantastic. Great speech uh, on Sunday, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so the campaign proper has kicked off, right?
1: Yeah, it has. Yeah, yeah. No, it was interesting as well. They took two different approaches. Now, well, as we said, the traditional sort of uh, you know big big bang approach to starting a campaign, whereas Marshall didn't do that. He uh, spent the uh, Sunday going around five electorates and live streaming you know meetings with candidates and people on a, a much lower key, lower you know visibility sort of campaign and. Was trying to, I think, link it to COVID and you know mass gatherings weren't that sensible or something. But yeah, yeah, it was certainly a big contrast in, in, in approach. In and I think um, so. Sort of Labour have been a bit more vibrant this week than the Libs. Labor. The Libs have been pretty low key about about the whole thing so far. And the Labour's been out there banging the traditional drums. Uh, where and Liberals are looking a little bit like they're just trying to catch up a bit.
0: So week one, you'd uh, give it to give the points to um, to the Labour Party.
1: I would, yeah, 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 definitely. I think they're setting the agenda, especially when it comes to, to health.
0: And uh, predictions, if you want to make any.
1: That's early, isn't it? I know I'll look like a complete, you know, idiot in about three weeks' time. But I, th- I still think the Libs will hang on. I still think there's probably an element that, uh, after sixteen years of Labour, four years of the Libs, well, we've done the mostly. We've done okay. I think you know we'll why don't a bit of you know we'll give this bloke one more goal, see how it goes kind of thing, you know. Mm. I don't know if there enough people were willing to quite, you know, make, make the big move to, to kick him out just yet. I think it'll be close. I think it'll be a minority government for the Libs. I could see them winning, you know, 22, 23, then, you know, relying on one of those independents, one of those Fraser Ellis's or Troy Bells or someone just to, to get to 24. But oh. that could change. I mean, it's...
0: Hmm. Don't – never fear about um, making an an idiot yourself making a prediction because I did an interview on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York at the 2016 uh, presidential elections with the ABC Washington correspondent and said, oh, Hillary's going to absolutely crush it. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah, well, okay. (laughs) So, you know, just get out there and tell us what you think. That's all it is. I think – we will move on and forget. Indeed. I think Labor's going to win. I think they're going to win by two seconds. Yep. You're biased, though. I am.
1: Uh, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very unbiased, you know, Murdoch journalist.
0: This is a, this is just a very biased little unknown podcast, uh, Michael.
1: No. Let's put me on the front page of the age of the Australian.
0: Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Or someone will just grab this as a, as their scoop. That's probably what tends to happen. In fact, you should just do it. You know, you've got first dibs on it since you actually are on the podcast.
1: I think I should out myself somehow.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, outrageous, you know. Uh, yeah outrageous comments by by journalists
0: indeed all uh, right now this is the bit of the you know when you're watching the cricket and uh richie Benno says to our um our sydney viewers we're going to leave you to you gonna watch the national Night <laughs> news uh to all of our viewers that don't care about football in particular the celtic football club um thank you for listening to today's episode <laughs> um and i'll see you next week uh but for those who want to stick around let's talk about celtic um I don't know which order to do this because obviously we played this morning in the second mm. leg of that um I don't know what they call this tournament the Champions Conference league. Thank you, the U- Europa Conference League, second leg against Bodo uh glint. Glint. <laughs> Um and we lost uh two nil five one on aggregate. Um over the course of the two games. Pretty shit performance, I thought by Celtic. Um since you didn't watch it, watch it, I don't think we need to talk too much about it. But so let's talk Unless you've got any thoughts it on happens. it. Let's talk more broadly. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about the signing of Ant Postacoglu as the manager before he began? What were your expectations for this season?
1: Well, I it put me in the camp of at the time of dubious. Um, obviously, we've seen a bit of Ange. And I must say, I I thought he's mainly because of the way his career as a Australian coach ended. And he kind of left the team before the World Cup and, he seemed to be very unhappy, very grumpy, t- seemed to be unable to take criticism. His team was playing terrible football and would tell you it was, you know, playing wonderfully. And so I just, yeah, so I was kind of uh, uninspired at the time. But then I thought it would be interesting. I thought the, the other part of me, the optimist part of me thought, well, you, you kind of know the way he tries to play football. And if he goes to Celtic, he's going to have much better players to play with than he had to play with. Uh, with the Australian national team. Mm. So maybe you, you'll be able to um, you know, in, you know, inspire something there or you'll be able to Im- implement his philosophies in, in, a, in a better way with players he's going to train every day and who are probably a, a higher skill level to, to be able to carry out his philosophy. Because I think one of my frustrations with him as an Australian coach was he kept trying to play that philosophy with players who were clearly not up to the job. And or who didn't want you, to be up to the job, I don't know. Well, but,
0: yeah. And that's the thing about international football. You can't go out and sign a better striker. You've got, mm. you've got to, you know, work with the cattle that comes from your country. You know, that's sort of yep. that's that's it, right? Um, yeah, yeah, whereas yeah. when you play for, a, well, when you're managing a club, obviously you're, there's other restraints like budgets and whatnot. But if you've got the money, you can go and get the players you want to play the style you want to play.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I knew he'd done well in Japan, and you know, the, again, the story was that he, he was playing fast, flowing, attacking football, and you know, the Celtic fans, but that's the kind of football we like to see. So. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, in despair when he was approached, but, but when he was appointed. But it was, it was after that whole Eddie Howe debacle as well. So you know, we were all feeling a bit down. So mm. I was trying to find some optimism there somewhere. And you would think, well, all right, well, let's see how this goes. I didn't think it'd be dull. I thought it'd either be a complete, you know, disaster or you know, something of a triumph. But
0: it had. He's, a, won, he's won, me around. It certainly had a kind of. Is this another Tony Mowbray kind of? Yeah. Moment. Yeah. For us, I thought the other thing I was worried about actually was after a while I was talking to my brother about it and he said I'm more worried about will is because normally you know selling supporters we think whether you know or well, everyone does it with their own club they all think you're amazing no one's bigger than us but um, my brother sort of posed this, the 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 question um, will Ange actually get the kind of support that he probably expects like has because what I'd heard was the back room of the club had been gutted when Brendan Rodgers left. So hmm. uh, sports analytics, uh, n- nutritionists, uh, physicians, physios, the whole, you know, all the support stuff, all went. Um, and when Lennon came in, he didn't give a shit about half that stuff anyway.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And so I was worried that Andrew's going to rock up and go, what is this, 1986? <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, what kind of
0: yeah. elite football organisation is like, this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that he would be struggling from day one. And just reading into some of his comments that he said certainly at the start, like remember the discussion about whether the Celtic was going to get a director of football and, yeah. uh, and a whole bunch of other positions that he wanted to fill. Would he keep uh, John Kennedy and Strachan's mm-hmm. kid, <laughs> wherever his first name is? Gavin. Gavin. Uh, and his iPad. Um, yes. were, you know w- 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 What would he do with his backroom staff? Mm. Um, So I was worried about that. I was worried that Andrew was actually going to go in there and actually just go, this is shit, I've got got nothing to work with here. Yeah, yeah,
1: I can't win. Yeah, well, that's right. He turned up on his own, didn't he? We all kept waiting for him to bring across an assistant coach or two or build a team around him, but he went in and tried to, had to work with the team we all thought were rubbish last year Mm. and uh, tried to make the best of it and try and convince I mean, it must be hard to go into that environment and convince a lot of blokes who would have their own philosophy of football about this is what we're doing, this is how we're playing, and this is what I want you to do. And for them to to jump on board and say, okay, that's, we're, we're with you. Let's let's do this, you know. But he seems to be—he's clearly a very effective communicator because uh, you know everyone seems to have jumped on board.
0: In particular, the fans as well. I mean, I don't know if you, you yeah. know, social media, my God, they, Twitter, just absolutely love Ange at the moment. And things are going. At the moment. I, <laughs> at, the moment. Yeah, at the moment. I haven't actually been on Twitter this morning to see what everyone's were. No, thoughts me neither.
1: About. I'll leave that alone for the
0: day. <laughs> I don't, for my, my own mental sanity. Yeah. But um, so how, we're, you know, we've got 10 league games to go with three points on top of, um, um, of our rivals, uh, Rangers. How are you feeling about the season so far
1: oh, I'm delighted I mean some of the um, the football has been I've watched them more this year than I have in, in years to be honest um, and because yeah uh, you know, i didn't end up watching a lot of games last year because it was just just horrible it was horrible football New Year were when to lose and it was just you know it was a bad atmosphere
0: oh no atmosphere, the, the, no atmosphere was just miserable yeah yeah
1: yeah so this year's been it's been fun and the you know the Defense gives me the willies, but you know, that's you know, that's I'm 50 years old, you know, I've, I've seen that before. Mm. Um, but it's fun to watch them play when they're on the top of the game. That first half against uh Rangers was just astonishing. It was, I don't think I've seen them play that well f- for years. Uh, just the way that the pace and the aggression and uh, taking the chances and just not being prepared to take a backward step at any, any point was, was just uh, thrilling to watch. Um I just thought we haven't peaked too early because it's been a bit. Hasn't been quite the same since. Uh, apart from the Motherwell was it the was at the the Motherwell the Hearts game. Motherwell game was not too bad for mm. for a while, but. Um,
0: Wraith, Aberdeen he, um, yeah, D on the weekend. Ordinary.
1: We went through that phase of dominating teams and not actually putting them away or letting them back in. The uh, the you know letting Aberdeen back in from two them down and being in complete control was annoying. So. Well,
0: the set shots or goals from coming from set pieces is a, yeah, is yeah, yeah. a bit of a worry. Like there was some stat during the week that that boys analytics um, Twitter page was talking about more than fifty percent of our goals conceded this year. Yeah. Albeit <laughs> not many goals though, the defense yeah. has done quite a good job. Um, have come from set pieces, corners, or free kicks.
1: Yeah, yeah, and every time we give away a corner or free kick, you're kind of you know feeling the worst. You don't feel like you know we're going to we're not going to clear it or there's going to be a chance or you know. And I, I, I don't know what they do about that, but, you know, neither Vickers or Starfelt seem particularly dominant in the box in the air. Well, they're not too bad elsewhere, but in the heart seems a bit rooted to his line at times as well, which is a bit bit annoying. And you wonder whether Julian's got a role to play in there somewhere, but he's barely played, so who knows what sort of shape he's in, really. So. But a bloke is six a six might be quite handy for us at this stage. time.
0: I mean, both Starfelt and uh, CCV are reasonably tall uh, players, and so is that kid Welsh as well. They don't look tall, yeah. Um, no,
1: I'm not talking to them. You know,
0: but they are. They're over six foot. I just, they mm. just can't seem to, the, the marking is, must be letting us down or just concentration, those key moments. That second Dundee goal on the weekend, I, oh. I just, I said straight away, when they got that free kick, I went, they're going yeah. to score here. I just feel yeah, it. Yeah. And they did.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, the first one was even worse though. Just letting a block half volley and half volley went in from six yards at the back post. That was-
0: it's and it kind of looked like it was organised because their main um, tar- big targets all ran to the front post, whereas those mm. two guys hung at the back. And one of the Dundee players basically sort of set up like a, a, a screen in basketball mm. to let the other guy get loose from um, uh, O'Reilly trying to mark him and then just slot it into the back post. Yeah, yeah. Teams have obviously, oh, yeah. I mean, particularly from last year, I think they got a lot of confidence about. Oh, okay, this is how we beat Celtic. We need set yeah, pieces because yeah. they, they, geez, they dive and look for free kicks. Or basically, <laughs> once you get over halfway, that's it. They're just hitting the ground.
1: That's the whole. That's the whole game plan right there. Yeah, because they will They very rarely cut, cut us up in that sense. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the free kicks from there. I mean, we don't seem to organise it very well. I mean, that was a Second goal that Aberdeen scored with Lewis Ferguson, who's good in the air, was being marked by Greg Taylor, who's you know. Three foot two, you know, it's just ridiculous. O- organization.
0: What's with that? What, you, what have you made of the sightings that Ange has brought in? One of the remarkable things about that r- result against the Huns was, I think, nine of the starting eleven were yeah. new signings from Postecoglou, yeah. which is remarkable given that he's only been there for twenty minutes.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, it's been great. I mean, there have been, uh, there's none of them you would say so far has been a complete dud. Uh, you know, even uh, Jack Maccas, who I thought was a, looking a bit ordinary for a while, it seems to, have, you know come good and is being useful clearly so that o'reilly looks like he could be an absolute star once he really gets the hang of things i think
0: yeah didn't play well. <sighs> i didn't see this morning but he look he i think he in in possession with the ball and linking up play in forward areas i think he's he's fantastic and mm. great example of that was the game against rangers but yeah. defensively tracking back, marking, physicality. He the one of the things I took away from the Bodo game was that our midfield got bossed. Um and it's just, you know, but cuz Rogic Rogic isn't a great sort of defender when yeah. out of possession, he's pretty slow. Um so that means that um, you know, Callum McGregor in that defensive position has got to do a lot more work as well as then O'Reilly's got to step up. I think Atatata is actually probably a better option for like, what they call in that number eight position to yeah, yeah. hassle on Harry because he seems to really sort of nip around and get at people's, catch people's heels and stuff, you know? Whereas O'Reilly just is, I think sometimes he's lost. I think
1: it would take a while to adjust to it. I mean, he's come from, from League One. He's clear, He's got a lot of talent. Mm. I just don't think you can play, at this stage generally, you can play Roderick and O'Reilly in the same team very often, Really? because I think they're both a bit too languid for their own goods. But, you know, if you had one of them and another one coming off the bench, I think, you know, you you'd do pretty well. But um, when's Kyogo back?
0: Oh, no, it's funny because uh, no one wants to ask that question anymore after Ang told a journalist <laughs> to fuck off. <laughs> Stop <laughs> asking <laughs> me questions about when Kyogo's coming back. No, I don't want to know. I don't, and I bet you all the journalists when they walk into the press room, are all whispering to each other at the start going, who's going to ask the Kyogo question? I'm not doing it. You do it. You do it. I'm not doing it.
1: <laughs> he, he must come back at some point. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think he would make a big difference. I think, yeah, we've been a bit... Just, the energy he provides uh, it would be fantastic. As good as we've been, it would be nice to have him back, I think, for, uh, the, for the run home.
0: And that's... as play that Ange wants us to, to play, is it requires a lot of movement off the ball from both yeah. the midfield wide areas and the guys up front. And Yakimakis yeah, has done a great job as that sort of that point kind of target forward, so, you know, physicality and stuff. But yeah. uh, I just don't, Jakimakis and um, Maida, I just don't think that's worked. Yeah, uh, probably not yet. I and think the-
1: Maeda's still settling in as well. I think he's got, I think a lot of these people will be a lot better next year when they've had a whole year of, well, you know, at least six months of, Training with Ange and playing with their teammates and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we had you know Hatati and Maida come in, you know, since January and become important parts of the team. But you know, it must be hard to make that adjustment so and you, quickly.
0: And you're probably thinking, half these guys are probably staying in hotels and stuff as well. I mean, have they yeah. actually have their lives actually settled in Glasgow? Have they managed to buy their mansion in um, you know Milgay or Bearsden or whatever? Right?
1: <laughs> It'd be a bit of a culture shock from Tokyo, certainly.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, particularly because the natives don't speak English. Um, sorry is by the anti-Scots racism for you. <laughs> oh, Come on man um, <laughs> One thing actually Not more broadly related to football in general But it's mm-hmm. starting to give me the shits Time wasting Time wasting is yeah. giving me the shits Can FIFA change the rules And move to a similar model Of like say in American football And basketball and hockey and I think Nipple might have even do it When the ball's not in play Stop the clock Take the clock away from the referee, go upstairs and let them manage the time. When the ball's out, stop the clock. When the ball's back in play, start the clock. People don't time waste things because you, you can't waste time when the clock's not ticking.
1: <laughs> you know how long games would be then? I think, I, is the Golden Play 60 minutes a game or something?
0: Yeah, something I think like I've that. Read that somewhere. I'm, I'm fine with that because then it won't, no one will be mucking around anymore because everyone's basically got, not, each team That's will good. get 90 minutes to win the game.
1: No, that's frustrating. The ship's always been part of the, the deal, hasn't it? You know, oh, it just the, the, uh, you know, the diving at the right time and just uh, eating up the clock a little bit more. and you know, just, It's part of the fun of the game, isn't
0: it? No, it's killing You're
1: getting it's... older and grumpier.
0: I am. <laughs> I am. It's a pet peeve. That's one way we can fix it. They can't fix the diving and the rolling around. For I don't know how we're ever going to fix that. That's just...
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. I, That does annoy me. But maybe as an older player, I'm no, I still as I'm still playing, I'm, I'm quite happy with the time wasting, so I can get my breath back.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Predictions <laughs> for the season. Uh, how are we going to go in the uh, in the league, do you think?
1: Well, it went by nine points.
0: Wow. Okay. You're far more optimistic about Celtic than you are about the Labour Party.
1: Well, I'm invested in Celtic.
0: <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, two crucial games against the Huns to still to play, one at mm-hmm. home one away. The other weird thing about it is this scenario that the SPLs got, have got themselves in with the fixturing. Have you been mm-hmm. following that?
1: In terms of home and away games, after yeah. the split. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. technically... We're supposed to have five, aren't we, technically?
0: Yeah, and technically the Huns yeah. are supposed to have five away, but they're not going to do yeah. that because, no, you know, they're all in the lodge.
1: Imagine. Jeez, they, how do they wing after they get a referee because go against them? They call us paranoid. They're unbelievable. Um, <laughs> that,
0: is, that is the word. It is unbelievable. <laughs> they're
1: just every time they don't get exactly what they want. They just—it's a conspiracy, and you know, world—they're all, all out to get us. And you know, no one likes us, and we don't care, except we do. And you know, it's just, oh, it's just pathetic. It's just a different world.
0: It's remarkable yeah. to think that actually, at the, you know, we think about back to the start of the season what our prospects were. That we're still on course for a treble.
1: Yes. Yes. If we could win the league, it would be an astonishing achievement, I think. Um, and I know. We probably said a while back that you know, well, if we get close, that's good and it's something to build on. But if we threw it away now, I'd be devastated. It would just be. A, it'd be a very sweet one to win this one, given you know the debacle that was last year, and the, I think uh, a view that Rangers will going really to dominate us for years, years and years to come. You know, and it'd be a very sweet one to win this.
0: And I think it also just sets a tone resets that tone and show, yeah, yeah. Pr- makes that season last year is a blimp like a sort of a... yeah
1: that's right let's not forget we've won we're out the last 10 leagues
0: yeah and it's an outlier yeah. you know yeah, yeah. Um, particularly yeah anyway I want to get ahead of us I was about to
1: say I probably shouldn't say these things but I don't know
0: <laughs> anyway well Malcolm Bawai it's been wonderful to talk to you both about politics and Celtic
1: well, it's been nice to speak to you Stephen again we don't speak often enough it's fun
0: indeed uh, good luck. You've, you Now, anything you want to plug? I know you've written a couple of books.
1: Yes, I, well, the last one I was a couple of years ago, but if you want to read uh, Flight Risk, uh, feel free. It's a, it's a good, well-looking uh, adventure. There's also um, Never a True Word, which uh, may or may not be set in, you know, my time in politics, uh, working in the South Australian state government, which is, uh, oh, what would you call it? Political satire, political, uh, you know, Rumination. It's a, it's a novel, though. It's not a, it's not a it's not a it's not a it's not a memoir. It's a you know, it's a it's a novel with some jokes. Very It's, good. A, it's fun.
0: Um, at, at all good bookstores. Uh, wonderful to see you again, and uh, I look forward to having to be with you in Adelaide uh, sometime soon.
1: That'd be lovely, Stephen. Thank you.
0: Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.